Japanese convenience stores, the pizza effect, and the debate over barbecue. This week, it's National Dishes. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. This is where we try food and drink from around the world. And this week I'm talking with Anya von Bremsen about her book, National Dish, Around the World in Search of Food, History, and the Meaning of Home. But first, head over to DestinationEatDrink.com and sign up for the monthly Destination Eat Drink newsletter. I keep you up to date on all the stuff here at the podcast, but also my foodie videos and my foodie travel stories. Thank you so very much. Anya von Bremsen is a three-time James Beard award-winning culinary author whose books have been translated into 19 languages. Anya was born in Soviet Russia and came to the U.S. as a girl. She tells me what it was like when she first got to the United States. And of course, we had no idea what to buy because we, you know, there's just so many things. Like we would buy Pop-Tarts. Of course, nobody <laughs> told us that you had to toast them. So we would just eat these rope, you know, oh my God, it's disgusting. Anya and I also talk about her latest book, National Dish, and what a national dish actually means. I'll bet her answer will surprise you. She tells me about how dishes can unite cultures and countries, and we speculate on potential national dishes for the United States and Portugal. All right, it's a great conversation, and I'm starving, so let's eat. Destination Eat Drink. Anya von Bremsen, author of National Dish Around the World in Search of Food, History, and the Meaning of Home. Thank you so much for being on Destination Eat Drink. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. You know, um, I was reading your book, and it occurred to me that people throw around the phrase national dish quite a bit, sometimes even sarcastically. Like people might say, oh, the national dish of the United States is the Big Mac or something silly like that. I was wondering, do you have sort of a definition or a catch-all on how you define what a national dish actually is? Well, the whole point of the book was to get to that question and to answer it. And there are so many ways of posing these questions and so many ways of answering this. It's, it's a very complicated issue. Uh, and at some point, I said the idea of the national dish and of the nation itself suffers from a problematic obviousness. We think, oh, there was always France, and France always had this national dishes. Oh, there was always Italy, and Italy always had this national dishes. Well, there was no Italy until 1860s, until the unification, until the country became a nation. Uh, and the national dishes that we think of, national dishes of Italy, pasta al pomodoro, pizza, they really didn't become any part of any canon until well into the 20th century. Um, there were there was no Turkey until the 20th century. There was no Greece until 1830 and the War of Independence. Uh, the default uh, political order before nation uh, nation state came about was the empire, and empires are multicultural, and they have all these different cuisines and their melting pots. Um, so in order to define the national dish, first you have to define a nation, and this is really an idea that very strongly goes back to the French Revolution of 1789, when an absolutist kingdom, a monarchy, 
with God and king at the head, uh, becomes a nation ruled in the name of its citizens, a sovereign nation with a unified language, or at least an attempt uh, to unify language um, and a written constitution. And think about it, at that time, less than 20% of the population spoke standard French. Uh, think about uh, Italy, 1860, uh, less than 10% of the population speaks standard Italian, so we can't even talk a unified language let alone about a national dish. So the, my book, National Dish, is a journey into how these national canons and national dishes are created, how nations are created, uh, and what to make of it at this moment of intense globalization. We as human beings, we create these maps, we draw these, some would say, arbitrary lines on a map to divide countries into each other. We say we have culture, language, customs, and food that we all share. But in fact, we, we don't know, you know, human beings can cross borders. <laughs> you know, human beings want to cross borders. So I, I think that's part of the challenge of trying to identify a national dish is when you've got people that are coming and going and bringing things with them. Um, maybe a national dish even changes over time. I don't know. Oh, absolutely. It changes because, well, think about it again. The nations that we think were always there just didn't exist, many of them, until the 20th century. Think of the entire region we call the Middle East. There was no Syria, Lebanon, Turkey, uh, Israel, right? Uh, most of it was part of the Ottoman Empire. And again, empires are multicultural. There's a lot of exchange uh, and a lot of trade and uh, you know, empires are characterized by their cosmopolitanism, which is the opposite of nationalism. So, yeah, I mean, certainly people cross borders, even the borders that were established recently, or there was something else before. And foods especially cross borders because of trade. We think globalization is a modern phenomenon. In fact, if you look at Renaissance menus and the descriptions of Renaissance markets, like let's say in what is now Italy, it is so incredibly cosmopolitan because it was a sign of power, wealth, and status to bring in ingredients from faraway lands. This is when we get into this issue of transplanted cuisine, which is something that I talk about quite a bit um, on this podcast, you know, ingredients that travel across borders, across cultures, and go to new places and are, you know, maybe they create a dish that's from their homeland, or maybe these ingredients are used and adapted into new ways to create new dishes. Well, absolutely. I mean, think of Italian cuisine and think of where Italian cuisine would be, would be without tomatoes, right? Yes. That's the example I love using because yes. tomatoes are a new and world thing. They are new world thing, and they struggled for about two, three centuries to become accepted from the time they first appeared. Uh, I think it was in Seville, which is one of the chapters in my book, you know, in the 16th century to the time in the first recipe uh, with spaghetti al pomodoro appears in 1839 in the Neapolitan cookbook, or the first time the tomato goes on a pizza, which people think was about 1760s, right? It was just some strange botanical curiosity that people thought were poisonous. And it was more cultivated as a fruit. It's like an exotic fruit by the aristocracy. So all cuisines 
are a product of mixture, of trade, unfortunately of conquest, even more unfortunately of colonialism, which is, you know, you get your tomato story. Uh, so food is an amazing prism, an amazing way to look into so many other things like history, uh, social history, trade history, uh, colonialism, identity. And these were all the issues that I wanted to explore in National Dish to show how a dish like pizza or, or like a meal like tapas in Spain just can tell us so much about society. I, you know, I kind of made fun earlier and I said, you know, some people would say that the American National Dish is the Big Mac. But I was wondering, I noticed you didn't have America, the United States, in your book uh, for a national dish. Do you think that there could be, with such a multicultural society, do you think there could be um, a case made for a single national dish in the United States? Oh, I think it's a difficult one. I mean, unfortunately, the cheeseburger is a good example because it's an example of American corporate food culture. And that's probably the most powerful thing about about the U.S., you know, the McDonaldization and the coca colonization uh, that it sends to the rest of the world. And I think when you when you travel abroad, certainly the first thing that people say, oh, you're American, you must eat a lot of, you know, hamburguesa or hamburger, as they say in Italian or whatever word they use. So it's, it's certainly a dish that's associated with America and it represents, you know, a certain industrialization right, uh, and fast foodization uh, of the global food scene uh, as as kind of uh, a product of American corporate imperialism, if you like. Um, but I would say, I mean, for me, the South is really where um, so many emblematic dishes come from. I would say, I would think barbecue, definitely, mm. because it just had such a rich layered uh, history of, race obviously uh class uh it just it's, it's just a fascinating world i didn't tackle american cuisine because as you say we use the um sort of assimilationist metaphor us of a melting pot to describe our society which is you know some argue would be politically incorrect because we you know some some cultures don't want to assimilate um so yeah what i live in jackson heights queens which is a neighborhood where they speak 168 languages, which linguists and anthropologists come to study. So, and I can have a Tibetan Momo or uh, a Carolan Curry. Or the Arapa or Lady. Are or the Arapa Lady, yes, the <laughs> famous Arapa Lady that has a brick and mortar restaurant. Uh, so the choice, the choice is just staggering. Um, so how do you defy American cuisine? In, in the 21st century. So I looked at examples that were easy, easier uh, on the mind <laughs> and easier to deal with, uh, such as, you know, Italy for pizza and pasta al pomodoro, then Japan, Tokyo for ramen and rice, which are the two cornerstones of the Japanese national cuisine. Then I went to Spain to look at tapas, which is just such an important form of socializing and uh, so much, such a part of the national brand. I start the book in France because that's where the first conversation about national cuisine is related to nationalism and identity started. So I look at pot a feu, which is this rich uh, soup with beef and vegetables. I go to Oaxaca, 
to look at tortilla, the corn tortilla and mole. And I end in Istanbul looking at meze and how they reflect that multicultural Ottoman past. So it was it was already a lot. Uh, <laughs> but maybe in the next in the next, you know, in the follow-up volume, uh, maybe I'll tackle I'll tackle barbecue. Maybe in volume two, you can do uh, the United States and you can do Portugal as well. So <laughs> Portugal, Portugal is absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it, it, what, it really is. What would be the national dish of Portugal? Something with salt cod, right? Yeah, bacalao abras, I think, would be the, would mm. be the national dish. I think uh, most Portuguese would agree upon that. Um, I would like to throw into the ring a uh, pastel de nada. Uh, for my mm-hmm. vote, <laughs> but that's yes. just that's just me. I think I'd probably get outvoted on that one. Um, the you know, going back to the barbecue real quickly, um, I think one interesting thing about that is not only is it uh, barbecue ubiquitous throughout the United States, but there's also regional differences with that. And you see, you know, when you think of a national dish, you think, oh, it's one thing, but there are regional differences amongst national dishes yes in in many cases it is and and what makes i would argue from a political standpoint that what makes a dish national uh is is the regional variations because at some points you know nations formed they uh, established their borders and the idea of nationhood but then they had to wrestle all these different regions you know into the mix you know they had to say that diversity is part of the national idea, and this happened in France, this happened in Italy, this happened in any country that unified uh, from different regional provinces. And so kind of arguing that, oh yes, we have a national dish, but it has all these regional variations is very important part of kind of confirming the status of the dish as national. Like, oh yes, you know, here they're prepared like this, and here prepared they're prepared like this, but it's still in the end all American or all Portuguese or French. I want to talk uh, specifically about a couple of the national dishes. But before we do, um, I did want to talk about your background because you came from Russia in the 1970s. Your family um, came to the United States, to Philadelphia specifically. And I was curious because I just wonder what it was like in the 70s for a, uh, a young Russian girl to wind up in Philly, what was your reaction specifically to the food? You know, not uh, American food in general, but Philadelphia food specifically. Did your mom only prepare Russian dishes when you came here? Were you dying for Big Macs? Tell me a little bit about that. Well, it was a whole adventure because, you know, I came from a country that had very little food. And in fact, I wrote a memoir about it called Mastering the Art of Soviet Cooking, where everything was really politicized. You had to stand in line for a long time for like even the most basic items. Um, and food was an object of great desire and longing, and you always wanted more of it. I, I really, I'm probably the only food writer that had banana maybe twice in, in her life. <laughs> and I never heard of asparagus or avocado. Wow. So the whole idea of America as a land of plenty, plenty was something that people literally immigrated for because they were, my mom, you know, they were tired of the lines and tired of the shortages and tired of like eating the same thing and living in the same way. But when we came to America, food was really the site of like my most intense culture shock. I still remember going to the American supermarket in Philly, Northeastern Philly, 
this massive space with like 16 varieties of toilet paper, where in Russia we would use newspaper, haha, right? Uh, so many different chicken parts all packaged, uh, strawberries out of season that didn't taste like anything. Uh, and people had very different reactions. Some would just literally fall to the floor and just kiss the ground like some hmm. immigrants. Some would have just this violent rejection of everything is just horrible. And of course, we had no idea what to buy because we, you know, there's just so many things. Like we would buy pop tarts. Of course, <laughs> nobody told us that you had to toast them. <laughs> so we would just eat these rope, you know, just, oh my God, it's disgusting. I remember my mom, for some reason, bought Hormel uh, pickled pig's feet oh, in vinegar. That was like the most disgusting thing I've ever, <laughs> I, I ever remember. Uh, and uh, and then we didn't have a car, and uh, we had to walk to the supermarket, which was like twenty five minutes, and part of it was along the highway. And I describe in my memoir a scene where we're carrying this paper bag that was before plastic, kind of hugging this paper bag, and it starts raining, and the bag begins to disintegrate, and all our purchases, you know, kind of tumble down on the oh, highway. Wow. And I just sit on the side of the highway and cry because this alienation is just so intense. But everything tasted different. Like Russian hot dogs have one taste. They're more like German. Here, you know, in, in Philly, the first taste we had was a hot dog and a pretzel that my mom bought for me on the street. And pretzel had all this like weird salt, you know, salt crystals on it. And hot dog was just pure nitrates. It was like sour and weird. Um, and then we would go to like a Passover, a Jewish Passover, and they would serve us gefilte fish which is uh, this Jewish celebratory dish. And that would be so sweet. So everything just seemed so out of whack and so strange. And it, it took me just literally years to get used to it. Do you remember your first cheesesteak with that uh, neon cheese on top? Velveeta, yeah. The Velveeta was another, another point of just absolute kind of mm, bafflement. And, you know, <laughs> you, you watch it slightly in horror, slightly with fascination, like what is this day glow? orange thing but i actually i really like cheesesteaks that i had no problem with cheesesteaks uh so that was that was a good one there was there was something that i thought was called ho hoji hoagie right they served us at school uh you know this overstuffed sandwich and i would think like why would they put you know uh bologna and cheese and all these things inside a sandwich where you know a russian sandwich would be just one piece of bread and one piece of cheese <laughs> and things like this yeah i can go on forever it's still it's still so vivid in my mind. Well, let's talk a, a little bit about a couple of the national dishes from your book. And I'd like to start in Naples because it's one of my favorite cities. My girlfriend's family is originally from outside of Naples, so uh, we, we love Naples. And, of course, you choose for Italy's national dish uh, pizza. And you talk about something called the pizza effect. W what is the pizza effect? Uh, well, let's just backtrack a little bit and, and say something that I think most people don't realize, that pizza is a purely Neapolitan food. And it's a product of a particular urban condition, which is overcrowding. Uh, 19th century Naples was 10 times urban density of Victorian London. Imagine how crowded that is. So pizza was a salvation, a street food that costs only a soldo, like a cent, and that a lot of people could afford. And it would provide you know decent a decent meal. Outside of Naples, pizza is completely not known. Uh, and if it is known, it's it's really scorned. Like Carlo Collodi, the creator of Pinocchio, 
uh, he wrote a book for children about a little boy's voyage across Italy. And then he said, do you know what pizza is? It's complicated filth, you know, <laughs> just like totally disparaging. So what happens with pizza is after the unification of Italy, 1860s, lots of poverty, lots of chaos, a lot of folk from uh, southern Italy specifically leave. It is, in fact, the largest, uh, one, uh, one of the largest uh, recorded out-migrations in human history um, from Italy to the Americas. Uh, and um, they started, they start making Italian food. Pizza, pasta, pizzeria. So pizza kind of takes off here before, arguably, it becomes known outside of Naples and Italy. And it not doesn't only take off, it becomes kind of this sought-after thing and very famous. And then it is, you know, the idea of pizza as a national Italian food and is something fabulous uh, goes back to Naples. And this is the pizza effect. Pizza effect was the term coined by a Hindu anthropologist, actually in relationship to yoga, because apparently yoga in India was totally like not a big deal. But it became popular in the States and elsewhere. And then it was re-imported to India uh, as something that's imbued with new meaning and new status and and uh, demanding new respect. And this is what happens to pizza in Naples. This is a pizza effect. So it's a scorn dish, uh, not understood um, until well in, in into the 20th century outside Naples. Then it becomes, bam, huge in the Americas. And then it comes back as a kind of hero. As I was reading this chapter, I'm going through it, and I'm in the back of my head, I'm thinking, all right, she's going to mention Sorbillo's. I know she's going to mention it. I hope she likes Sorbillo's, because I love Sorbillo's. And you got to Sorbillo's, and you did. You you liked it. So I, I felt uh, I felt a sense of relief, because I, I was like, I'm hoping, oh, I hope she doesn't rip Sorbillo's. It's one of my favorite places. The pizza there is amazing. Yeah, Sorbillo is like one of the, one of the best-known pizzeria in Naples, and it has branches in New York and somewhere else in Milan. Um, the main pizza, my, my main protagonist is is like a rival pizzaiola, but they're all friends, called Enzo Coccia of Pizzeria La Notizia. And Sorbillo is more populist. Uh, the guy, I first wrote about him, Gino Sorbillo, the owner, when he was like 18. That was 25 years ago. And it's a dynasty of pizzaiola. Even the aunt, even the even women pizzaiola, but Sorbillo is an interesting figure because uh, of what I was saying before. Because pizza was not a respected food; it didn't have much status. And the whole figure of the pizzaiola as a craftsperson got no respect. They were just like you know, as as, as one of them, I think Sorbillo tells me, we were like the lowest rung of the artisans, like no respect, no money. But then pizza becomes extremely, because of the pizza effect, pizza becomes extremely popular. All those foreigners want it. And Sorbillo, because he's very handsome and charismatic, he becomes really the Italy and the world's first true celebrity pizzaiolo. Like he's on TV all the time, you know, so I kind of have a funny scene of me trying to interview him. And he's like on the phone and giving interviews to radios and like being the celebrity and being like very operatic and histrionic <laughs> about his own celebrity. It's, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a kind of a comic, slightly comical character, but an important character, in, important to understand uh, what pizza has come to mean for Naples, because the lines 
you know, all these pizzerias used to be in, in very poor, very dangerous neighborhoods, like Spacanapoli, you know, the center of Naples, you would, you know, literally get mugged. There's always uh, drive-by purse snatchers, the scrippatore. Um, and then in part, it was pizza that turned this completely gentrified neighborhood and turned it into like this epicenter of foodie tourism. And these places have just lines, you know, that last out the door, you know, for two hours. So Sorbillo's is, is world famous. And like you said, they've got branch in New York um, and other places as well. Do you have a, an under the radar pizza place in Naples that you really love and that uh, you could maybe share with our audience? Well, my, the main place where I do most of my writing uh, is called La Notizia, and it's in Bomera. And uh, Enzo Coccia, I say if Sorbillo is a Cristiano Ronaldo uh, of, of the pizza scene, you know, like the celebrity, international celebrity, then Enzo Coccia is more of an intellectual. He does so much with science and he writes books. He's also incredibly famous. Uh, but because it's in Vomero, a residential district, uh, it's not as mobbed as Sorbillo. And he has actually three pizzeria uh, on the same street, you know, doing very different thing. La Notizia. And, and the pizza is just out of this world. I think it was in your chapter on Naples. Um, you had a quote that really resonated with me. And um, I'm going to I'm going to read it back to you real quick. Uh, it goes, does food taste different when we imagine it embodies a genus loci, a spirit of place. And this resonated with me because um, I was a gelato maker for several years and mm. in the U.S. And inevitably, Whoa. people would come back from Italy and say things like, why can't we get uh, gelato like we had it in Italy? And I'm like, you can. <laughs> what you can't get in the U.S. is going on a passeggiata and licking your cone in the piazza and all the beautiful Italian people are nearby and you stop and you have a chat and, you know, you lick your ice cream. That's something you can't replicate in the U.S. You can get very good gelato in the U.S. You can also get bad gelato, of course. But there are excellent, excellent gelato makers. And it goes for all these foods that people come back and they say, oh, I can't get, I can't get good you know, pick the food here. Um, you actually can, but I think when I read this quote, it really kind of embodied what I was thinking about this idea. Yeah, I, I also somewhat deconstruct the idea. It's really about our projections, as you say, and our expectations. And the spirit of place is very much a construct because it might be some dish that actually doesn't belong to the place that we associate with. Um, the whole idea of authenticity, at one point in the book, also in, in the pizza chapter, I said, oh, I'm used, oh, oh, authenticity, you know, such a monster marketing tool, right? Uh, because what is authentic to one person is not authentic to the other. We can go to Puerto Rico and, you know, we want to be in a place where the oldsters are having their mofongo. We want to go to Istanbul and, you know, seek out some burek which is a little pie, you know, in the most authentic place. But when we see the same people, let's say, going to a McDonald's or having a Caesar salad or going to a sushi place, we're like, oh, they're not being very authentic to themselves. Well, maybe we should let people decide what is authentic, what is an authentic experience. Uh, it's it's very relative. But because, you know, because of so much project projections and expectations and association of cuisine with place, 
um, yeah, I think the food does taste different and that difference might, might be in our mind. I think with the gelato, you know, they in the commercial gelaterias, they use a lot of these syrups mm-hmm. and artificial flavorings yes. that we think, oh, it's so authentically Italian. In fact, it's, it's manufactured, right? It's artificial. But there, yeah, there is a taste to the gelato, to the commercial gelato that you almost can't get here. And you're absolutely right. The piazza and the passaggiata and just doing your transactions in Italian uh, and paying in euros, it's, it's, everything changes. Food is extremely subjective. I'd like to jump to Japan. Uh, your chapter is about uh, ramen and rice. And I've never been to Japan uh, when we lived in Hawaii, we almost went to Japan. We went to New Zealand instead, <laughs> a choice, that, a choice that I'll stand by. <laughs> but, um, I was kind of surprised to learn that, uh, the dishes that we think of as staples in Japan, like rice and ramen and miso and even sake, uh, for that matter, um, aren't as popular as maybe I imagined they would be, uh, across the population. That's a very interesting question, and it's something I examine in my chapter on Tokyo. Uh, governments, societies elevate certain dishes into national treasures, and this is very much the case with white rice. With cooked white rice in Japan, it's called gohan, and the word is equivalent to the word meal, and it forms the basis of a purely Japanese dining style called washuku which got inscribed into UNESCO Intangible Heritage uh, List. So it's rice, miso soup, and three side dishes. You know, this is like the quintessential Japanese meal. Um, And Japanese children are taught in school that rice is a basis of their culture. Hmm. Uh, There's just such a level of self-identification with rice uh, that even one anthropologist uh, wrote a book called Rice as Self, as the Japanese self. But here's a paradox. Uh, despite this vaunted status, status and this like nearly mythological uh, veneration, the rice consumption has been going down since the 60s. And it's kind of pretty drastic right, right now. Uh, the Japanese farmers, rice farmers, don't have much to do. A lot of them do other work. And when they retire, uh, they don't know if anyone is going to replace them because rice farming has been heavily subsidized. Uh, but now the subsidies are lifting. So there's a complicated economic situation. But because Tokyo, like Paris, like London, like New York, is such a massively globalized city with so many food choices, um, yes, the Japanese are eating other things. You know, they love pasta, they eat, love French food. And sometimes they don't even distinguish. I had a very funny scene in the Tokyo chapter where I go to the department store uh, food basement and do a little polling, you know, take a little informal poll, asking all the shoppers what they think is Japanese. Hmm. So I say, uh, rice or pasta? And the woman says, I said, what, what is more Japanese? She says, oh, they're both Japanese. She's like, oh, yeah. Pasta is Italian. Pasta is Japanese. <laughs> then I say, shu or wagashi? Shu is the Japanese for shoe pastry, which is like so French. Or wagashi is a Japanese pastry. And another person looks at me and says, well, they're both Japanese. <laughs> and then I say, well, Izakaya or McDonald's? And then a woman literally tells me, oh, well, I mean, the McDonald's is Japanese. I mean, it's, it's a phenomenon that's called indigenization, uh, which is kind of a form of appropriation, right? You know, when something comes, when a trend comes to Japan, 
the Japanese so thoroughly internalize it and make it their own that they really think, you know, they think crepes are Japanese, uh, French crepes, you know, because they came uh, quite a few de- decades ago and they um, took off in the region of Harajuku in Tokyo, which is a hipster, hipster neighborhood. And the rest of Japan think that Harajuku crepes, you know, is something that was invented in Harajuku. So it's kind of really fascinating what passes for national dish and how these ideas are internalized. And yes, there's a huge amount of pride in Japanese ingredients and Japanese cooking. But at the same time, diners are turning away from uh, classic Japanese cooking. And that's a normal phenomenon. One last thing about Japan is uh, the convenience stores, which you talked about in your chapter. Talk about those a little bit, because I found it just absolutely fascinating and mind-blowing. The convenience stores uh, called Combini um, were modeled on American franchise models. And in fact, uh, the trio is American. It's 7-Eleven, Lawson's, and Family Mart. Originally, there were places where you get kind of an inferior bento box to take on the train station or just stop by to buy some pens. But because of such great demand, you know, recently they've evolved into just this dizzyingly uh, stocked uh, little places. I mean, a comini, a small comini, would have six hundred items, uh, which is which is which is staggering. And uh, they're very savvy. They have a point, what's called a point of sale system (POS). So when you buy something, uh, the clerk does an intake, you know, they, they do approximately age, gender, location, even weather. And that information gets transmitted to the manufacturer. So when a product is not doing well, it's immediately sacked from the shelf. So uh, it's really just this cutthroat uh, places of Japanese food fashion. And it's not just about food. You can do almost anything. There was a big revolution when Kamini started uh, selling postage stamps. Uh, and the Japanese bureaucracy is very cumbersome. Like even banking, post office, everything takes a long time and a lot of signatures. And Komini basically just started doing all this. You know, so you can you can if you go on a ski vacation, you can book it through a Komini and bring your skis, and they will ship it <laughs> to the Komini. You know, in your ski destination, it's it's kind of astounding. You could just get anything done there. There are these tiny shops. Uh, well, some some are bigger than others, and and they're absolutely indis- indispensable. Uh, to the Japanese society and you get like 60 kinds of ramen and all this onigiri, you know, the rice balls in the latest fashion, fashionable flavors. They're astounding. Well, Anya, this has just been a great conversation and it's been eye-opening and educational and just fun to talk to you about your book, National Dish. We'll have a link to the book in the show notes um, for folks to go and get it. But I want to thank you for being here today because it's just been so fun talking to you. And I have to say congratulations because I've been following the book now and you are just getting raves on this thing. And I know how hard it is to break through when you, when you write a book. So congratulations on that. It's really quite a uh, great accomplishment on your part. Thank you so much. It was really great talking to you. Okay, there you go. Anya is so smart about culinary history. I I guess I like her so much because she makes my point that I'm always repeating on this podcast, and that's that culture is food and food is culture. 
You can get Anya's book, National Dish, wherever books are sold. It's an excellent read. I definitely recommend it. I've also got a link to her book in the show notes at radiomisfits.com slash DED245. Well, that's it for this week. Next week, we're in Melbourne, Australia, for Hot Jam Donuts great markets, and terrific coffee. Don't miss that. Until then, I've got lots of great foodie stuff at DestinationEatDrink.com. I just posted a story, in fact, about the suite of Braga, Portugal, that originated in a local convent. Get that at DestinationEatDrink.com slash blog. I also just posted a video about the pastries of Braga, just in general, not just the ones from the convent. You can watch me wolf down some of the most delicious and amazing pastries in the video. Just click on the video tab at DestinationEatDrink.com or go to my YouTube channel and hit up at DestinationEatDrink946. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and a guy who says Scott should be a national dish, Ed Silla. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson. I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.